Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show with Lisa and Nancy, publishers of Big Blend Magazines and nature photographer Margot Carrera. Hey everybody, welcome. We are very excited to welcome two authors joining us to talk about their book, The Conceivable Future, Planning Families and Taking Action in the Age of Climate Change. Yeah, it's kind of a real deal, man. It's You can't mess around. So we've got Megan Elizabeth Coleman joining us and Josephine Ferrarelli, and I hope I pronounced her name right. Uh, and the foreword of the book is by Elizabeth Rush. Check it out. It comes out February 2024 through Roman and Littlefield, but you can get it now. You can also go to their website for their organization, conceivablefuture.org. So welcome, ladies. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having us. Okay, so good to have you both on the show. And I want to start with you, Josephine. How did you meet Megan? How did this all start? (laughs) Because you're both two different states, right? It's true. Um, I met Megan by chance through a mutual friend uh, in November of 2014. So we're almost, this is like a, this is an anniversary of sorts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was the funniest thing. We have a, a friend named Jamie Topper, who's a musician. And I was visiting, uh, my, my partner and I were visiting Jamie because Jamie was going to play this show, um, of music she had composed, uh, to accompany a lecture on dark matter that a physicist was giving. Oh, cool. Um, That's my and- style of thing, right? I'm in. Oh, you would have loved it. It was, it was phenomenal. Um, and before the show started, Jamie kind of grabbed me and dragged me over to Megan and was like, you two are climate people. You should talk. And I don't know exactly, like, I, I don't know if this would have happened at another time in my life. There was just, there was just something about, um, where I was at, where Megan was at was within the first five or 10 minutes that we were talking, we were talking about what a scary time it is to consider starting a family. Right. Uh, and just that that deep connection between the personal and the political that we really hadn't I hadn't had that conversation, but I had that thought for like most of my life. So it was a really important conversation. It was a really important meeting in my life. Yeah. I think it's really important to talk about um children coming onto the planet, period. Because some of our human rights as women are being taken away at the same time. So it's kind of a really trippy, weird time. It's weird. It's a weird time. Um, not necessarily positive time for women. Um, but there's a fear, I think, a big fear. And, you know, before we started recording, I was talking about, like, I chose not to have kids at a very young age. And But it doesn't mean that, that it would stick that way. And, and who knows? Anything could change, right? And that's fine. You know, I'm fine with that, but I chose it for my lifestyle and because I thought, you know, there are people that really want kids on this planet and they want them. And everything I do is really for the generation of the future for what I work. So it's not an anti-kid. So I think there's people like me, but then there's people like me that are just also terrified of having kids now. Uh, What do you say, Megan, about that, about Yeah. So, I mean, and I think in order to answer that question, I'm going to backpedal a little bit. Um, Look, she went into the dark. I went dark. Uh, I'm in in the dark. I wasn't, wasn't being moving active enough. Um, 
So when Josephine and I met, as she said, uh, we were both 30 years old and we were this, I mean, this question was starting to sort of press on us. And what we found among other things was that there was a real dearth of spaces where people could talk about like what it means to think about a family in a really unstable future. Um, and that inquiry led us down a like 10 year, um, organizing project. So we, we built an organization called, and we called it conceivable future. And the, like at the outset, really all we were focused on doing was bringing people together to have conversations about what climate change meant to their reproductive lives. That was it. So our spaces have always been open to parents, to non-parents, to undecided, to, um, uh, any, you know, anybody who falls anywhere in the spectrum of loving the next generation, right? Whether that's through being a parent, through being an aunt or an uncle, um, through being a teacher. And it was simply to hold some non-judgmental space where people didn't feel like they were going to be bossed around or judged for whatever fears they brought forward. See, thank you. Cause you didn't judge me. Cause normally if I said anything about exactly, I rarely say it that that and was and, that and taboo. Rarely, that taboo that, I, I think, was pressing very heavily on a lot of people because uh, I mean, and there's, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Right. So um, as the organization sort of, we, we built out and we grew, um, we initially followed this model of house parties that we actually sort of filched from second wave feminism organizing. Um, and the idea was just that bring, bringing people together and giving them some space and a little bit of a, like a, a safe framework to have some conversations helps create a political critique, right. Helps create a sense of belonging in a broader movement helps us feel less alone. Um, and the goal here has always been to empower people to take political action, to slow, staunch the bleeding, right? To slow climate change, to adapt better, to make the world more just, right? So the feelings about parenting are kind of the entry point. They're the door through which we walk um, in order to get activated in all these other spaces in our lives. And as we were doing all of this work, right, we found that we had to by default, engage in a whole lot of conversations that had been kind of like messily cir circling this topic. Um, chief among them was population, right? So there's, um, we're, we're pretty critical of the, of the population arguments or the zero growth population movements because the data has shown over and over and over again, um, that those policies target poor women, target women of color, target women in the global south, um, and that like truly, uh, you know, a, a justice-based approach is not That's about killing human rights. Yeah. Can I just say, because I, I mean, I, I was raised in Africa. Yeah. And so yeah. I wonder if that was how I got hold of that information. Because, I mean, I, I, was, probably... I was raised in Kenya and South Africa. And it was South Africa, I was in my more becoming a, an adult teenager kind of thing at that point. I think you would have received it here too, but I, I suspect that it has a different, I, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what, what kind of because messaging like, you were oh, receiving. Because starving Africans, which there are, um, you know, but there's that, and you know, you always heard about that um, over time. Um, it's, Megan's coming back, but yeah, you know, so you always, she's in the dark, she's in the light, she's coming through. It's all, right. all good. I'll just but, stay dark. Okay. But no, it's a whatever, um, you know, kind of interesting going from South Africa as an, a teenager, then coming here when I was 19 and it was a culture shock for me. And, and so, yes, there are starving people all over the world, India, China, everywhere. Right. So don't, but I, I don't know how I got hold of that information and, and I have lived with tribes in, in 
the woods and, and not well, in this country as well there was a huge effort to um by groups like zero population growth to mainstream the idea that more people equals more environmental harm in like elementary school middle school science curricula okay. so we were getting it in this country as well the the critical piece that's hmm. missing there is that population correlates with environmental environmental harm only to the degree that it correlates with consumption right so right uh, in this country, the population is not really growing. We keep on hearing headlines about how the population is actually at, at an all-time uh, population. Yeah, we stopped having kids at because we don't need to do that many farm kids anymore, right? All that stuff. Um, but yeah. at the same time, our consumption is huge, right? Like our per capita consumption is huge. Okay. So then it's... I mean, you could, you could look at that and say, well, maybe we should have fewer people, but that seems like a very convoluted way to approach the problem. It's like, why is consumption built in? At, why is waste built in? Why is fossil fuels emissions built in at such a high level just to live in this country? Mm. You know, from your experiences of living other places that it doesn't, none no, of this is equivalent to like a we happy, use, good quality no, of life. That, you that, don't need. Yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. This country, this country is huge in consumption that was the culture shock when we got here it was like 30 years ago and we went to a grocery store my mom and I you know she grew up here and I left when I was a year and a half and lived in the bush in Kenya went to England culture shock for a year and a half and had to go back to Africa you know (laughs) just no offense to England England's cool and and you know so South Africa and then it was time to come home during a lot of political unrest and being American citizens you needed to and we went to a grocery store and I remember standing there looking at my mom going, why are there 10 butters? What was wrong with the first butter? And last year, my best friend from South Africa, high school friend came over. We haven't, you know, it was very hard for all of us to find each other. And we did. And she came over and I took her to a grocery store and lo and behold, it was the butter aisle and the same thing. She goes, what's wrong with your butter? And I said, well, now I know. I didn't know back then because it was in the early 90s. We didn't know. Now, yeah, now everybody knows I'm old. But, you know, so it was this whole thing. And and it is true about the consumption. How many plastic containers of margarine, which is already plastic, do we need? How many of these things? And so you you both, with what your book is about, bring hope and light. And I have a friend who's an environmentalist who went to college for the whole thing and he looked at me one day and said Lisa you know you're into the environment you've got a brain you're the people we want to have multiply and I said that's a really terrible thing to say that is it's a terrible thing to say Um, we've we've heard that quite a lot and our response is is also the same and it's just like you know that is it's a it's a thin veneer over classism and racism I mean for us the only answer we call this the impossible question right this question of whether or not how do I parent it's an impossible question when there's only challenging structural inequalities facing you right so the only right answer to the impossible question as far as we're concerned is to whatever your decisions or life life circumstances about parenting is to work as hard as we can for a world that's safe for everyone's kids. That's it. Doesn't matter if yeah, I have I agree. kids. Josephine Josephine has none, right? So it doesn't matter. It should, you know, for us, it's, it doesn't matter whose kids they are. Every kid deserves to be born into a world that yeah. can sustain them. And I that's care about job. all my friends' kids, their family. I mean, they're all family, and it's like, do you, you know, we go to park. I mean, we document parks and public lands, and we go to a park. You see a kid in awe over something. How do you not be touched by that? How do you not be touched 
about our our fellow human beings and their kids. And you want them to have this chance. And it's really, I think, what you're doing is very interesting because it's a way to actually call action, no matter what your political beliefs are, no matter what your race is, no matter what background, how rich, poor, what it doesn't matter. That is what the climate change action is, but calling parents is important and for others to know that there's, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. was the key and thing, right? Sorry, go I was going to say, there's a particular like feminist problem in here as well. And Lisa, I'm sure that you've had this experience that if you share that you uh, are are not a parent, um, and especially if you share that environmental reasons play a role, mm-hmm. people often receive that as if it's a judgment on them. And there's there's a way in which for for women specifically, but like it uh, for people more broadly, like you're there's not enough room for people to to make their own decisions and to and to be supported in that for for reproductive decisions specifically it's always like someone else knows what the right answer but there's no way that you at the end of the day i don't even want to go through the pain okay so like i don't want to go through childbirth that's also another reason (laughs) right and those are completely valid and they don't invalidate someone else's so it's like how do we all benefit when there's when there's space for all of us, right? When you can live how you want to live and make make decisions that are right for you without, first of all, without massive avoidable government sponsored harm in the form of the climate crisis. But secondly, without this feeling, this pressure to conform to like like a certain gendered norm that being uh, being a parent or being a mother is like the only like fulfillment the the ultimate fulfillment and you'll never know what you're missing until you you know that there's these strong pressures oh or i'm gay if i didn't have a child you're gay and that's not true and and you know if i've had people because my mom and i travel together ask us um how long have you been together and i said well i know her inside and out since like kid (laughs) (laughs) but you know so just because you get to make these decisions. And when we came to the States, I thought in South Africa, you can't really make that time as many decisions. Um, and over here coming home and I was like, this is my decision at this time. If it wants to change, it can, and it hasn't, I'm a traveler and I do what I do. It's a work thing too, but it's like, if you want to have a child, you can at any time. Yeah. But- and I think, you know, the other piece of this is that even for, you know, women in the States, the ability to like make these choices freely doesn't really exist, right? Like we, in some places, the the right to, you know, contraceptive access and abortion is protected. In some places it's not, but in some places, even if it's protected, you can't access it, right? Because it's too far away or the closest clinic is a nine hour bus ride or your insurance is giving you a hard time or whatever. Oh my, um, you're stuck in an abusive deal. relationship, right? There's, so I, I mean, I think once you start pulling on this thread of reproduction, you get to all of these other pieces that support healthy environments and lives sort of broadly defined and for everybody, right? So for us, you know, climate health involves reproductive health, reproductive sovereignty, the, the right yes. to live in an environment that's not polluted, the right to like know what a tree healthcare. looks like and have access to it. Exactly. Healthcare, um, food. So it, so they, these, you know, access to things, transportation, right? So, so one of the things that we discovered as we started this organization and, you know, 
started hearing from people is that there's all these different bits that came into it. So for instance, one of the things that we heard a lot at the very beginning was like people saying, well, I don't have children, or if I don't have children, how do I pass on my gifts to the next generation? And particularly in the U.S. middle class, it's a very class-based thing, but like in the U.S. middle class, it's, you know, the nuclear family is kind of the ideal. And if you don't have kids, you don't really have access to kids, right? So you can't, you know, where do you put the donut recipe or like your grandmother's copy of the book or whatever it is? Like, how do you, how do you pass those along? And so part of that is, you know, we have a pretty impoverished view in my, in, in my perspective of what a family is, right? That it's very rigidly defined. Um, and that it's not acknowledged politically or legally as, you know, like expansive. And so we have, you know, there are all sorts of ways that can support human thriving that we've made it very difficult to support human thriving. So that was, you know, the, how do I, how do I have, you know, have children in my life if I don't quote, have them myself? That was one thing that we heard. Another thing that we hear a lot is, you know, my, all of my activist time is like eaten up by parenting. So say I have two toddlers, I got twin toddlers or, and bedtime and community meeting time is the same time and there's no babysitter and there's no food and we get home from work and we're smoked and the kids are smoked. Um, everybody's tired. Um, like how do I maintain activist connections while I'm also parenting? So, so once we started having these conversations and just sort of said to, said to folks, bring your experience in, tell us what's on your mind. We heard a huge range of things, a huge range, right? So, um, we certainly heard like fear about what kind of worlds children would inhabit like a hotter and violent and less stable and more dangerous world where shortage, you know, shortage in human conflict characterizes more interactions than they do currently. Um, but also that the climate change crisis exposes and like exacerbates, it comes, it lands on a landscape that's already really unequal, right? So unequal in terms of racial privilege and racial oppression, unequal in terms of gender privilege and gender oppression. In fact, the same week that we got our book contract, the Supreme Court issued the Dobbs decision and it, and it gutted the EPA's right to like enforce in cli climate standards, right? So it was the same week that we got this book and we're like, oh, okay. So now, now we're writing about a really different environment than we were inviting writing. Yeah. about. Well, and so well, when, when we put this, this conversation down, it lands yeah. on like a surface that's already patterned by all these historical inequalities, you know? And so and one of the things we've done over time is like, try to really peel apart some of these layers and see what else is, see what else is feeding this. Sorry, Josephine, did I? Well, no, I, I want to go, I want to go with this being a very global thing. And so from the American side, but it's global, right? Climate change is huge and there is major fear. And what I talk about on shows a lot is people are worried about immigrants coming into our country and things like that. And I said, well, get used to it and get used to you may have to pack your bags. I did an interview with a lady who wrote about a remote area in Alaska that she was in in her early years. And she's pretty much an elder now. And I said, well, this island, like, what's it like now with climate change? She said, first island to leave, to pack up. And it's going away. So we really, I mean, the climate, you know, people in islands and places like that, that we want to go vacation and go have our little Bahama mama, this is going to change. And we can go on our wonderful cruise lines, cruising cities, and go have these cocktails and go have these big vacations. But at the end of the day, it's about us, I believe, having this conversation with our kids in our lives, whether you're a parent, whether you're a foster parent, where you're adopting, you know, it really doesn't matter. 
you know, like for me, I said, my friends are having the kids because most of my friends, everybody was getting engaged and married at the time we left high school. And I was like, no. Um, so, but I'm supporting them and whatever they need to do. You know, you become the aunt, you become that. And it's about working together and not ignoring it and don't hide the fear factor because the fear factor is real. And and I bring yeah. up the Africa thing because the fear factor was real growing up. I went through a lot of crazy stuff. But I also had this immense beauty that I was in my backyard, right? I learned about snakes and I should be dead now by like the amount <laughs> of snake encounters. However, I was taught how to react, how to deal with things. And that's where I want to go with your book is that in your organization, these conversations are so important, Right. Because that's like you're saying, you're getting all this information. What are people's fears? How can we fix things? And what are all, what, what do people really need? No matter what. So I feel like it's kind of getting together and you can't hide the truth. You can't. And the inequalities are there in every country. I mean, when we came to this country, you know, abortion was legal. Now it's not, you know, so it's like, and in South Africa, abortion was illegal. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of up and down. Yeah. But the reality is raising kids to maybe not be so phone fixated, even though they know how to use it and get information, but actually use it in the correct ways. Be part of something so it's not as scary, but making the positive changes that need to happen. Does that make sense? Sure. I think that like, there's also, because we didn't grow up with it, I think there's a tendency to only see the downside to the technology because we know we can do without. But the thing that I really love about kids' use of technology now is that they're doing what you're describing. Like, I I feel like I watch, I watch kids interact with each other in a way that's like sort of seamlessly digital and real. And it just feels like they're always feeling each other's heartbeats in a certain way. That's that's a good way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I know not, it's like everything it has, people are not all getting a great experience, but you were talking about stepping in to be with your, uh, the, the children of your friends, the, the, like making these kinship relationships. And I think for Megan and I, that's really, we've come to see that as a form of activism, which is that it's another way of like knitting, knitting us closer together, becoming dependable in a, in a meaningful way, making family where maybe there's not like a blood tie, but there's a love tie, uh, because everybody's going to need it. Like some parents might be so like up to their eyebrows in like responsibility and diapers that they don't identify like how, how, economic inequality or how climate is a driver or whatever, they don't necessarily take it on the, on the political level. It's just a personal experience, but you stepping in there, you having the kind of bandwidth, the capacity to like, not just, just help in the nuts and bolts way, but help them make sense of that. That's like, that's a really huge role Mm -hmm. that, that a lot of us play for each other. And if we can do it intentionally. It's community, community, right? Yeah. Aren't we like really looking at the conceivable future is about regrouping the village. Africa has the villages, right? That's um, the, the second half of our book is, is based on that. And uh, you know, it starts uh, the first, the first part of the book is sort of a, a tour through the history of women and gender led movements and our own movement and kind of what we've learned around, 
um, you know, reproductive histories, autonomy, the reproductive justice movement, uh, the population control movement, all sorts of stuff. And the second half is about how we become bigger than the challenges that we face, right? And the answer is always get together. It's always do things with each other. It's always build out build out your community, learn to, you know, learn to show up for our, each other in ways that maybe we haven't, or maybe that just need to be strengthened. But to your earlier point about hi- not hiding the ugly, um, we actually, we spoke to a, a number of um, child psychologists as a part of this project, and they all said the same thing, which is that kids, um, what did she say? She said, kids know when you're talking bullshit, right? Yep, and so her and, and her assessment was like, look, the impulse is frequently to hide bad news from children, but children are not dupes, right? They understand if there's something very grave going on. Um, and then if you, if you pretend it away, then you become untrustworthy and kids need their adults to be trustworthy. And therefore, like yeah. the way to handle this in much the same way that they're the, the way to handle other threats, right? Other scary things that grownups don't have control over is to be really truthful in an age appropriate way and teach kids how to build their own agency and their own autonomy and get them involved in stuff. Right. So whether that's, you know, a tree planting thing at the community or you, the community park, or you take them to the state house and they learn how to, you know, testify for something or whatever, a letter writing campaign. Pollinator garden. Pollinator gardens, Pollinator right? That, gardens. That's those are any, easy. Yeah. But action is better than no action, right? And so, um, and that what, what helps, and this is, you know, coming from the nascent, uh, fields of climate anxiety research, right? Is that the, the antidote to that is climate action. And so we need to be teaching each other that, you know, Josephine and I were both born in the eighties. Uh, it was a kind of a weird time as far as political, uh, movements were concerned, right? There was, um, we, we were teenagers came of age in the go, go nineties. And there, you know, the, like the, the sense of collective, um, was not super present in part because of the way the economy was. Um, and I think that the kids who are young adults now, right? People, my students age 18 to 22 or whatever, like they've come up in a very different environment. And in some ways they have way more skills at that age than look at, did. look at what they have done. I mean, yeah. for climate change. Uh, going against gun violence. I mean, they're exactly. badasses. I'm sorry. Yeah. And they, but and they, they really are. And they've had to develop that, unfortunately, because their adults have not handed them a safe world. Um, but, uh, they develop it. They have. And right. So part of, you know, part of this is building up, like building up those community organizing muscles and basically those community care muscles. The other thing I will say though about that is that often around climate, we have seen over the years, many, many, many times is that there's all sorts of like really challenging intergenerational uh, stickiness, right? Um, So there's guilt and a feeling of being misunderstood. And there's a feeling of shame and, you know, finger pointing. And uh, this is a rift that needs healing on all sides. And so we do, you know, we, we talk a lot to climate communications folks, again, psychologists, um, about how that um, that, uh, those conversations can be more constructive because, you know, we have often heard from like people in their twenties, you know, if they're questioning their dreams of a family for one reason or another, you know, they get, um, uh, some scolding or some incredulity from their parents, which is, uh, not, not typically a super helpful response. Um, and sort of similarly, people feel, you know, if you're an elder and you're feeling very responsible or sort of blamed and there's no space to like air, air all the complexities. And so again, the, the, the advice that we get over and over from the communications experts, from the psychologists is listen with curiosity, right? Just 
try to understand where the other person is coming from. Um, is you're going to really have some feelings and you can save those. <laughs> no, I remember this. I remember this, you know, so Nancy, my mom is, you know, coasts the shows usually. And um, she's, she, we did a live broadcast back in the old school days of us doing live broadcasts. And we were calling Monsanto and things like, like we, we were doing stuff in the white house and teaching people how to vote, all kinds of, stupid things we thought were well they did help but and the one guy we trusted who's like well you have to say this politically he was a political guy sat down next to my mom and said you know this is your fault the way the Mm. world is and it was like what i mean her whole life has been animal conservation saving tracts of land and been out in all levels, speaking um, in the fields, you name it, all of it. And and she goes, what the hell? He goes, well, you and your damn hippies did this. And, and this is a Democrat young dude, right? And she looked at him and she's like, well, you can leave my house now. And he's like, no, I'm not done. And she goes, oh, you can leave now. It was so bad. And, and she, and, and he, it was absolutely not necessary and he came off the way he shouldn't have yet they could have actually had a good conversation of how things happened but he had just learned something and decided to attack her on it and it was way off centered you know and you should know people a little bit better before you do it and you never know who what and where and so I think it's interesting about what you're saying about everybody has to have their you can't just blame one person or a whole, it just isn't, it's yeah. complicated. I think it's that's a good like, word to use. Yeah. It's a great word. It's a little bit like it's, you're going to the grocery store in the U S like the fact that there's 10 kinds of butter is also not your fault, right? Like the no. system is being driven by forces much bigger than any of us individually. Yeah. And so. And I, won't I think call it's Monsanto again. It's <laughs> trouble. <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, I think the other piece is though we need everybody. We need everybody in order to move the needle on these things, right? So that means we need people who are nearing the end of their lives. We We have to cross the the beginning of their lives. Everybody has to cross the aisles and get over it because listen, division is definitely not working for anybody anywhere in this world right now. Yeah, Yeah, sure. And the, the thing that comes from like building that accountability is then people can like hold space for the complexity, right? Like, I'm sure also that your mom can see like around her, like her, her age cohort, like she was betrayed by them as well. Like there is this issue that like the people who are making decisions for this really consequential period of time, the people in power were not voting for the health and safety of the next generation. They were voting for like signed in the EPA or whatever, (laughs) but yeah, breaking it down by like by age, like it makes a certain kind of logic when That's you're really wrong. angry and it's much more complicated than that. Um, so I think that like when you're in community, when you're with people you trust, you like you can hold the space for someone else's like bag of emotions. But there's, it's just that there's a lot of anger because there's a lot of injustice. And so like when young people, I, I think for us, the the connection was, however angry we might feel at like the leadership that was like the generation before us think about how how our kids are going to feel 
you know, toward us. And how, when, how mad we get when there's leadership we don't like. Yeah, exactly. So there's this, like, we need to kind of like relink that generational chain where there is a sense of accountability in all directions and also like a deep sense of love and responsibility. Well, so it's, yeah, it's it, not that, it, yeah. It's huge because it's also led to grandparents and grandkids being separated. We've done shows on yeah. this, whereas like these generational gaps and, and finger pointing and political changes have led actual families to split, generations yeah. to be split, grandkids not knowing their grandparents. It's kind of ridiculous. And as the world, which is climate change, that is our alien that we're supposed to fight against, right? Climate change is here. We need to regroup and form that community to go, okay, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, we're in Tucson and it's 90 degrees in November. Not normally. We used to live here. We have our storage unit here. No, it's not normally 90 degrees in November, but it's sunny and warm, but maybe 70, 80s, not 90 not over 90. That's a little odd. Yeah. You know, so whether you believe, whatever your political beliefs are, the reality is kind of happening. Wildfires, hurricanes, earthquakes. And, and again, the significant, the like most direct path into that empathy is often just questions, right? Like hmm. starting with something that you share with someone that you love, um, and then asking some questions. So our, the, we, we talked to a guy uh, named Matthew Bolber, who's a climate scientist at the, the Yale Center for Climate Communications. He's, excuse me, he's a communications guy. I mean, he gave the example if he had spoken to, with his neighbor about solar panels. Um, and he was like, hey, how do you like your solar panels? And the guy was like, I don't give a dang about climate change. They're cheaper on my bill. And, uh, and he was like, all right, great. So they, but they had this shared, they had this shared moment of like, everybody had solar panels and the things that drew them to solar panels were different, but equally valid. Uh, and they both got there. Right. And so the, the conversation was able to, um, sort of take off uh, and continue. You can't be screaming down the street going, climate change is coming. You know, everybody be vegan right now. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you like work. you have to think about when has your mind ever been changed about anything? When have you ever been reached by any piece of information that you weren't inclined to accept? And it's almost I I I doubt you would ever have one memory of being yelled at until you changed your mind about something, right? Good point. Good point. What yeah. about um schools and things like that and um kids going to schools and being taught things? How was that cuz I'm out of the loop on that. Well, um, I think this is an interesting one. My mom is a is a is an environmental scientist, and she's taught taught biology for my whole life. Um, and she actually chose her career in the early '80s, right when global warming was becoming a thing that people talked about. And she said, "Oh crap! Uh, like you know, we better we better get on this." Um, you know, and and education is obviously hugely important. I guess what I would say, um, and I'm here, I'm speaking a little bit from my role as a sociologist, is that you know, education unto itself doesn't always produce like political transformation. So that's thing one, right? Like people have to know they have to have skills, civic or political or community organizing skills to push on institutions. So that's obviously really important. Just knowing climate change is a problem can be paralyzing if you don't know how to engage yourself with other groups to figure out how to lessen it or alleviate some of the, um, the worst consequences. So that's, that's thing one, right? Like, so that they're, you know, education about the science is necessary, but insufficient. But the second thing, and I think this is probably more important is that most kids who are alive today, you know, we have a 10 year, 
rapidly closing window of time to avert catastrophic climate change, which means that like, if the six-year-old, if we're pinning our hopes on the six-year-old, you know, we're in deep doo-doo because we, we, the window for us to take this action will be closed by the time that child is 16. Right. So this is an adult responsibility right now, as far as getting our system off fossil fuels, cleaning it up, making it more just, um, you know, creating a world in which the the benefits and the harms um, of the climate transformation are, you know, distributed equitably. That's a grown up job. Um, and so, yes, we ought to be teaching, you know, climate science, environmental science, you know, science, generally speaking, we also ought to be teaching civics and political efficacy. But really what we oh, ought yes. to be doing is solving solving this problem now in the time that we have to do it as well as we can. Um, and so that I think, you know, we hear a lot of like, well, maybe, you know, the the kids coming up, they're going to save us with that. No, like oh, the no, opportunity no, to no, save no. ourselves is right now. We, we should we shouldn't be. Oh, build it. You know, build it. You know, the children are our future. Sorry, Whitney Houston, but. We are their future. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and we are the future, not them. And we should be leaving it more pristine than what we had it. And that's the yeah. role of each generation. And so not going generationally, but I am. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a personal thing that, you know, keep your house clean for the next person that comes in. Yeah. You know? I think, though, so in the early years, um, for the first couple of years that we were organizing, I feel like we asked almost everybody that we talked to how they first heard about climate change. Uh, and I was actually surprised. Almost everyone said it was in school. Almost everybody. Oh, really? Uh, wow. I mean, I have a really vivid memory of reading about global warming in an Archie comic. And that was like a really traumatic what? event for Are me as a child. No, Archie? that. No yeah. way. And then I did, <laughs> I did a little bit of research and it turns out that Archie's been on the, you know, on the environmental tip for a really long time. It's kind of amazing. But it turns out like science classrooms is where this has been happening all along. I think Megan is right that like civics is maybe where the stumbling block is, which is like, yeah, you can know the crisis encyclopedically, but if you don't know how to make yourself a part of the solution, that is how to work with other people and, and have your, have your reach to the bigger levers, like it, it's paralyzing. It's, it's really upsetting to, to know this stuff and not know what to do. So it's not just, it's not just curriculum stuff. Um, I think that's where the disconnect continues now. I think it's stuff that also happens in friend groups and in families. Like that's where we see how to live with what we know. That's how we, uh, like, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a hugely, uh, extroverted person. Like I, I don't, um, I don't love to be in enormous groups all the time. I would say that for me, my most consequential political relationship is one of my closest friendships is with Megan because it's just having that other person, that sounding board, that, that way of like developing a view that's bigger than, than just yourself and also like, what can we do with what we know? Like that, that has to happen in relationship. You have to always be feeling like, am I crazy? And the answer is no. You Like, I see what you're saying. Or like, yeah, maybe walk that back a little bit. I've got a different idea. Right, Because emotion, it's emotional. And that's what happens. Activism is also very emotional. And yeah. you have to kind of back off to make it work. And that's what we're seeing. Activism has changed. And Megan, you brought up about 
um, activism of parents coming home, they're both tired. But isn't activism also about what we can do in our lifestyle changes immediately? Well, I think it's both, right? So so the other sort of dimension on the opposite end of the spectrum from what Josephine was just talking about. So I'm a state senator. I represent um, a chunk of uh, Providence and half of the city of Pawtucket in Rhode Island. Um, so I'm like, I'll you be know, nice about politicians now. Sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, you, you go for it, right? Um, and so that's, it's like the very sort of more formalized end of it. And I guess I would say, it's all of the above, but one of the challenges of our generation, I think, partly because of when we were raised, is this idea that like consumption defines climate activism, right? So consumption is is important. Reducing consumption is important. Um, but I guess I would say like if lifestyle means, you know, trying to talk about how we change institutions, how we change systems, like that I think is a really important lifestyle thing. I also, you know, uh, lifestyle changes that are undertaken in groups, right? Whether those are tool libraries or childcare co-ops or whatever it is, um, also really important. I think where sometimes um, the climate movement has bottomed out, it's not even a movement at that point, right? It's just like a bunch of consumer choices. Consumer choices are important, right? They move industries. I'm not saying they're not, but what I am saying is that they're not those aren't political action. Like a boycott is a political action. Me choosing not to eat beef is not a political action, right? Like, because I'm doing it myself. Um, and so this is where, as you were saying before, like the community connection and the sense making and the sounding boards and all that stuff really comes into play. Um, but I guess I would also say sort of reflecting on my time in, in as a legislator and as an elected official, um, there are a ton of people who are really interested in what's going on and don't have the first idea where to start, right? Like I was, I think, the last generation that got civics classes in high school because they cut it right about the time that that I got through there. Um, you know, Rhode Island is a very small state. Everyone in the state lives within an hour of the state house of the Capitol, right? So everybody could come in, testify on a bill, get involved, right? It, but but the, the skill set, because we've gutted civics education is, you know, a lot, and it's, you know, it's understandably very scary if you've never done that. Um, and all of those, you know, related issues. So I think there's like, you know, at the very, what is political can look a huge range of ways, ranging from a dyad like Josephine and my extremely political and very close friendship, right? Like, you know, we we created this organization, you know, we've been running it for 10 years just on That's basis awesome. of that sounding board. And also like, what does it mean to really be in in collective groups and how do we build that out? It just has to go beyond meetings. And, yes. and I feel yeah. that, and I feel that about, and, and don't take this wrong about politics and about these giant corporations that say they're going to make change. They're going to only make change 10 years from now because they keep meeting. I'm an entrepreneur. I have a meeting and you better get on it now because we don't have time to play meeting. And so I feel like there are too many meetings. Like I'm all for gatherings and community building, and and I think that's hugely important. Yeah. But I also believe you can't just keep meeting and not doing the action. Uh, Joan Baez, my favorite quote is, "Action is the antidote to despair." Yeah. And just now, we can't be waiting to do action ten years from now. Hundred percent. We need to do it yeah. now. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And the first and step I think we- that is getting together. You were asking yes. about the like the global versus like the U S based view of this stuff and climate is this super weird issue because it is entirely global and it almost exclusively really manifests in these hyper local ways or like maybe state 
state ways, but like we see different faces of it depending on where we are in, in, and we can only, we can only address what's right in front of us. There's like, um, I, th- I think that increasingly around this country, and this is true around the world, but this is kind of what, what we have, uh, what we have access to, um, wherever you are in this country, you have fossil fuel industry in some shape or form, whether that's just like, like the sale of and use of fossil fuels, or there's extraction, or there's transport, or there's refining, or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we also have like the impacts of the changing climate, which is like where you are, it's really hot, weirdly hot for the time of year where I am torrential downpours, uh, you know, 75 one day, like 22 the next day, that kind of, but like everywhere there's, there's some way that it looks and it's not, it's not consistent across the place, but we all are having this experience of weirdness. So there's, I like the idea that you, you don't have to you go anywhere. You can't lie about it anymore. Yeah. yeah. You, can't, you can't hide. And you don't have to go it. anywhere else to see it. You see it where you are. You see the problem where you are and oh. you see potential solutions Man, where you are. I, being on the road full time, trust I me, bet. I'm living through it. Tornadoes, hurricanes, snow, ice storms. I've been through it. My poor car, a blizzard. <laughs> um, I talk through all the time and, and <laughs> I, I, it's been going for a long time, but there, it's real. Crop issues are real. It's affecting our food supply. So when you yeah. talk about the conceivable future, it is about food as well. And Megan, I know that you're at an event, you know, she's representing. <laughs> <laughs> she's a politician. No, I'm, I'm not. You're not. I hate the word politician. But It's not. okay. I am, I am a politician. Um, no, you're not like that. Not one of those. But uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I know you have to sneak out. Uh, Josephine will stay here. We'll close up in a little bit, but um, it has been good to have you on the show. Any closing comments before you go? I feel like we're on CNN now. Or, or I know it's been such a we're pleasure. Not- Thank you for having me um, uh, and having both of us. Yep. I, get, I guess I would say that, you know, Josephine, I think in a few minutes, we'll maybe sort of talk about yeses and nos. We conceive of our mm-hmm. activism as bad things we need to stop and good things that we need to build. Um, but none of those things can happen alone. They all have to happen in communities. So, um, you know, we're all children in each other's care in, you know, in some way, uh, and whether or not, you know, we have children out of our bodies or biologically, you know, we're all responsible for those who come after us. Um, and you know, that involves building a, as just and as fair and as healthy a world as possible for everybody. Um, and so thank you for your efforts towards, towards this. And, uh, it's been a pleasure talking. Well, have fun. And you're on an island. We got to take care of you. (laughs) (laughs) Take care, Megan. Thank you. So Josephine, I I think, I think the most important thing of this conversation and your book is going back to the word community. Yeah. Unity, which means going back to all of it. It is all systems must work for the unity of humankind, which is going to be working for the natural world as well. Yeah. So I think that's right. Yeah. Um, I think that I've spent a lot of time thinking about why this issue of all issues is so, is so hard for people to focus in on. And I think that one of the reasons is that there's this scale problem, which is that it's bigger. It's bigger than human scale. It's really hard to like, we can understand the science, but it's hard to like feel in your bones, like, 
or, or take it all in at once, right? And so that's one of the reasons that the community thing is really important because I think when you're alone, you can get really, really spun out, really paralyzed by how big the problem seems. And especially the way we've talked about it, that it's like all about your consumption and you need to reduce your carbon footprint and you need to like, you know, have uh, fewer children. And you need to do all this stuff to just make less and less. We have this idea that the harms that we can cause mm-hmm. are like enormous, but the good that we can do is like irrelevant minuscule. Right. And it's neither. It's like, if you're, if you're by yourself, like the harm and the good that you can do is pretty limited. It's like when you start to come together, you get to hold more of the, more of the big picture because you can hold it together and you can, you can kind of, uh, take it in that way. It's like you're either a stream or you're a river and the river needs all the molecules together to flow, right? Right. Exactly. I, I look at it very, it's, it's a, um, also very difficult because we're talking about one of the biggest fear factors in the world, which is change. We're creatures of habit. We are, whether they're good or bad habits, we are creatures of habit. And then we're asking everybody to change something because of a massive change. So it's an immediate, like, screw you. (laughs) That's an immediate reaction. And then there's anger and then there's starting to be this. And now we're dealing with fear, which creates more anxiety and more anger and then drama. So emotional and hormones and all of this stuff. And if you have a family, it's like, oh, do we do we care about soccer practice? Yeah, we do. We do need to keep some of those things going, you know. But I think I was getting to about the lifestyle changes. If families don't feel they can't do anything, you absolutely can doesn't mean you have to march down a street. Political action is important because politicians yeah. do get away with a ton and they do walk out with way more money than our healthcare system has. You know, yeah. it, it, that's the problem. And I think our political system needs, not Megan, <laughs> she's fine. But, well, but it's we an interesting question. If we don't because like, it, we aren't there. And calling the White House like we did on our shows. And we did it to teach people. And I'm sorry, but what happened when the White House answered the phone on air? Um, they didn't even know what they were doing. So it was kind of a very weird thing. And I was like, ooh, that's kind of scary. So I, I'm just, I think we need to look at, we're so used to barking at the television, barking at anybody yeah. who doesn't believe believe in what we believe in. And not actually communicating and holding accountability and watching. And it's hard. Parents with kids, a single mom with two kids, how are you going to stay on top of everything? Really? Right. With the help of your friends and your community. It's the only Ideally. Way. Right. Yeah. Right? I think it's, in- I, I like to hear, um, what you're saying about, about politics, because I think those aren't just like prejudices. That's like a lot many of our experiences. And I think for me, it's been really interesting to collaborate with Megan because she's, she was not in public office when we met um, and she was city council person first. And then she got the the Senate seat and she has the, she has also the sort of outsider view that I do, which is activism. One of the forms of activism is pushing on people within power structures to make them make those changes. And now I see that 
from the inside. If you're, if you're a politician, you are enmeshed in the system that is like really inefficient and kind of broken in a lot of ways. But, but what you're trying to do is get people to push you. You're trying to create this mutuality where you can always demonstrate that there is a public wish, right? Or like, mm-hmm that there are people who are against what you're against and there's people who are for what you're for. So you're not just acting alone and you're not just uh, like a tyrant or um, that you cannot make. Right. Yeah. So you need, you need to be in relationship even within and without the halls of power. And so I've, it's a little bit like, how does the sausage get made? And sometimes Megan has like some choice words for like, how she spent her day and like what she was listening to or how things were playing out and oh, how I many. Bet. I'm, I, I feel, I mean, the political system is evil. <laughs> like it's mean and it's cruel and yeah. it's hard work. And those that are going in there, honestly, yeah. are taking a brutal attack. They yeah. are. Well, like, honestly. and at the same time, like there's a, there's a real mystification around it that it, that it, I mean, it does involve a lot of money and that's the biggest problem. That um, is the biggest problem. Yeah. But if you look at who's running for like a lot of like state house seats in a lot of like, it's, it, there's a lot of uncontested candidates. There's a lot of people who just happen to notice that nobody really wants that job in their state and they can just kind of, kind of put themselves up it with very few credentials and, and just make something happen. And I think the same is true for like when you, when I had the political, political awakening that I had when I was living in Olympia, Washington, um, and I was, I was going to Quaker meetings and the Quakers have lobby day. Uh, I don't know if this is like, a, a universal phenomenon or just the Quakers in Olympia, but they would go to the state house, which was downtown and they would go office to office and talk about at the time gun control was their, their focal point. I think they do more climate work now. And what I, what I witnessed firsthand, which I had no idea about is that like a lot of time legislators doors are wide open and they're waiting for you to tell them stories that they can use as political currency. Cause stories is the way that they move levers. They have like, I met Joe who did blah, blah, blah. And he wants that kind of thing. So it's, it's a little bit cynical, but it's also, I hope encouraging that like, there's a way there are ways, even in a broken system, which is the one we find ourselves in, not just politically, but environmentally, economically, there's all this stuff that's not working the way it should. If you take it as a whole and you take it alone, it's quite depressing. It's pretty hard to think you can do anything about the Quakers. So that's like an mm. organized community, right? Mm-hmm. And historically, I mean, Quakers, have, they were abolitionists and they mm-hmm. ran and helped the Underground Railroad. They did so much mm-hmm. as an organized group of people that you may not believe in their spiritual beliefs and religious beliefs, but damn, they've done a lot. They have, and they were uh, they were whale traders early days too. So yeah. they don't have a perfect environmental but, record. But, but no, no. But, that, but here's the balance of that: no one's perfect because we're human beings and we screw up all the time. I don't care what yeah. we're talking about; we screw yeah. up all the time. That's part. That is that should be like everyone's resume should start with "I screw up." <laughs> yeah, but we yeah. do. Human beings screw up. So yeah why don't we kind of let each other breathe a little bit, find the ground to work together? Because I don't care. I'm not even a party person. I party. I do. I like my wine, but 
but even us as a magazine, radio, podcast, whatever, all of that, it's like we don't do political ads. We don't do any of that stuff and never will. Because yeah. I don't understand how we have that now where a newspaper can see, well, we're voting for this. I'm like, holy cow, that's weird. And and I come from a different background and raising. So it's different. And Africa's weird and different on that level, too. So we can't really use that as a positive. But but why are our why is our media being able to back politicians and yet all this money is being raised to be put into the coffers of the media, right? That's the big money thing is so that they have advertising to be voted for. So all of this money that could fix things in our country, it, it's going to the big media companies. Like, you know, you know, I mean, all of them, the huge media companies are just getting all of the political money and here we are little independent people going we're not doing that mm-hmm. be honest have people say what they need to say we're, we're, we don't even belong to parties it's like about what's right and what's wrong to us right so i, also, I mean this is like that's a where little I bit it's community like that I, i'm yeah. going back to the quakers on that because they seem sure. to have a community where they all work together to vote together yeah, so, I think that um, I, I want to go like a little bit left field here and then I will try and keep it brief. But this is on my mind, which is that like, I think presently the idea of a political party has a um, has a taint because it, it works so poorly in this country. Um, but in parliamentary systems, the party represents a platform. The platform is not just opinions, but it's uh, this is like this is what we represent. These are the values that we represent, the policies that we represent. So it matters less who the individual that you're voting for is, but that they will champion the values. So you vote for a party because that party has specific political aims and specific values. And that makes a lot of sense to me. That's an organization in a way like the Quakers. It's like, you know, organized around, if you vote for this, we support this, we don't support that. Right. So we don't do that so well here, but I am interested in, you know, um, a lot of the grassroots leadership that's coming up and you see it at the local and at the state level. We have, I'm in Chicago. We have a lot of really progressive local politics that are really inspiring. Um, many of them are democratic socialists, not all of them, but they're the policy, like the, the party platform has a really specific meaning. It's not just about like what are the opinions of the donors it's like this is we are we are telling you in writing this is what we stand for and that actually makes a certain amount of sense to me i don't feel like blind party loyalty is i don't i don't think that's what's at work there i think it's like we we want these but i think these outcomes and so we vote this way i think we're in this weird changeover i really believe that and i think Mm. that's part of that you know, the conceivable future is maybe, you know, I know people who only vote this way because their parents taught them to, and they're now in their sixties and seventies, like, sure, you know, so maybe we can not do that with the future. It's about teaching principles and letting your kids. And when I say this kids, not just like, you know, your immediate kids, your, your community oh, I know. kids yeah. make choices, decisions, communicate, have these discussions, you know, I think that's really important. And the kids, I mean, kids are so smart compared to when I was a kid, like, not like that we're dumb, 
But it was like, we were still playing in the dirt when kids could already understand what Google was doing and a phone that we were like, dude, I'm still playing with this worm. I don't know which is right or wrong, but kids are not dumb. Yeah. And, and you can't hide it. I'm glad we brought up that too. They, you cannot yeah. hide it. So, yeah. um, no, the best yeah. thing you can do is help your kid. Cause you said that you were aware of this stuff as a child. I know that I was. And the mm-hmm. fact that when I, when I heard, Greta Thunberg start to speak about her own experience of like her climate anxiety, but her parents weren't saying anything or do any doing anything that cognitive dissonance. It was so upsetting for me to hear that like 20 years after my own childhood, that there are still young people having that identical experience. And so this idea, yeah, like you can't, you can't protect your kid from knowing about this, but you can help them feel like you're in it with them. And like you, you are looking for answers. You will, you will take care to to do what's right. And kids can teach us so much too as older people, right? We can sit back and listen what's going on. You know, the most important thing we can do is listen, listen and just go, Oh, yay, nay. You know, if we can be a listening platform and help Um, any closing things, I mean, there's so much with your book and what you guys are doing. We really appreciate your work. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's stuff we can do. There's stuff we shouldn't do, like Megan was saying. Um, I just, I just want to say we can't go around beating a drum and yelling at people and telling them what to do. That's that's for sure. Yeah, I think that for us, um, it's always been conceivable future has always been a like a lightning rod because it's it combines two issues that have always been really touchy in this country, right? Reproduction, reproductive conceivable is a good lives. Thank you. Yeah, it's, I think it's probably the best pun of my life. Uh, so, so you have reproduction, then you have the climate. And those are in, certainly when we began our work, those were not either of them like dinner table conversation. Um, but when you look at the climate crisis through the lens of family planning, through the lens of this like intergenerational relationship and through people's right to reproductive autonomy, you see the crisis really differently. And that's both like the harms that it's already doing to people's reproductive health, to their reproductive freedom, but also the way solutions look different when you foreground a right to a healthy uh, pregnancy, a healthy childhood uh, and, and, enshrined rights for for full spe- full spectrum yeah. healthcare for um yeah you know a, for a a life that's that's as as good as as well, any right i think it's so huge because what you guys are talking about is like all these systems right so people end up eating food that they shouldn't because they can't afford organic food but then the minimum wage hasn't been raised over in this place so it's yeah. all of these factors, but then the minimum wage also has to be kind to the small business too. So there's all of that. And I feel like our country is being squeezed out by major, major corporations on the political front and on the actual, I, I just feel like we're going to lose our rights if we don't actually grow up in a way of opening eyes, working together to make real change because you know, we drive through a lot of company towns. Yeah. And the company towns are die. They die out. Yeah. And so these corporations are doing the same thing as we travel around and people are not always having the best working conditions. No. But they're not. They think it's okay and then they're not. But then you end up having habits that are not climate change climate friendly. 
basically. Right. Because yeah. I mean, so that's the, that's the, I think what's so great about what you guys have done is kind of put all of it together. If we take care of people, we're taking care of the climate. Well, thanks for saying that. It feels like, yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad we had an hour because it feels like you pull on one thread and you can't help but talk oh, about. Oh, you guys are, that's a bunch of rabbit holes. Yeah. It's that we were, we wrote a bunch of rabbit holes. It is, I, I think it wasn't obvious to us, like what the shape of, of the book would be until we started writing. And then it, things fell into place in this order, but it does take you from like the macro to the micro and then back out to the macro again. And that was sort of thrilling, but it's, I, we're, we're still in early days of figuring out how to condense that down to like sound bites. So I appreciate you taking the time and really, really talking through it with us. Yeah, everyone, it's going to be out in February, right? February 2024. February 6th, that's right. Yeah. People can, oh, February 6th, cool. Can people pre-order now, right? They can go They there? sure can. Yeah, you if go you go to, to our website. org is the website. Uh, check that out. I want to thank all of our uh, listeners for joining us and viewers uh, joining us here on Big Blend Radio. And I want to thank Margo Carrera, who's our partner in crime here uh, for the Nature Connection. She's an amazing nature photographer. And so check her out and check her out on Etsy. I'm just saying. But anyway, thank you so much, Josephine. And give Megan a hug when you see her, even though she's, uh, uh, you know, on an island in Rhode Island, right? <laughs> Thanks so much, Thanks Lisa. So this much. was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show. Follow us at BigBlendRadio.com and keep up with Margot at MargotCarrera.etsy.com.